The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. What's that? That is the job to bring us stuff in. What's that? Did you put it somewhere over here, maybe? Do what? Like this? How's that? Okay. Hey, Alethe, do you know where Vanya's stuff is? Okay. I just don't want to be correcting you during the school. I know. Alethe, did you see her bring her, her stuff in? She didn't. Start bringing to church. Where where did you put it? Did you put it in the gym? What's that? Okay. Well, I give you permission to go look in the gym for your. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. And we ask for your blessing and your grace upon us. We're so thankful for Christ and His benefits given to us. And yet, oh, Father, we are still filled with sin. We struggle. We uh, fight against the flesh. We are filled with unbelief. We can always pray, oh, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And we are not as uh, holy and as righteous as we tend to believe ourselves to be. Oftentimes we think our problems is, is other people. If only they would get their act together. If only they would, if only they would see things from our perspective, then things would be better, and uh, oftentimes it's our own sin to which we're blinded. So we need your grace, oh God. We need your, we need you to 
give us and really apply fuller measures of your spirit to our life so that we may learn to walk in holiness, learn to walk in, in your ways, O oh God. We ask for help and understanding this morning as we look into your word. Help us to understand it. Help me to, to teach it in a way that's clear. Uh, there are some deeper concepts here that are unfamiliar. And so as we recover them, really, we ask that you, you would help us, that you would be with us by your spirit. Pray for those who are sick, there's a number who are out sick right now, and ask that you would uh, bring to them a speedy recovery, so that they may be back with us to join us in our midst to worship the living God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 as we unfold the storyline of the Bible. Again, we're just looking, we're trying to get the whole storyline of Scripture. And it's um, what has been referred to as the redemptive historic storyline of the Bible. Now, what does anyone, can anyone explain to me what redemptive historic means? Some of you are like, oh, I want to, but oh, I don't. I don't want to be the first one to speak. Yes, Aaron. <laughs> okay, yeah, the history of our redemption. Yeah, and that, and this that history, and this is not just for Aaron. This is for anybody. Does that history begin with the coming of Christ? No. Yeah, when does it begin? Yeah, really from the beginning, in the fall, um, even as we see uh, the, the work of Adam was not to just to be a perpetual farmer. Sometimes we think he's just, well, you know, Adam is, uh, he's a Nebraskan. He's just going to be a farmer forever. You know, that, that's his lot. Um, no, he, he was in a garden, which is a special place, a temple. He was prophet, priest, and king, and uh, he was to expand this temple. To the ends of the earth, and uh, he had life held out to him. Now, here's the question: Did Adam have eternal life? Okay, no, he did not. And how do we know he did not have eternal life? Does he inherit? That's very well put. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? But why? Why is he not here? He died. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Yeah, we die. When we get to heaven, is that the way it's going to be? We might die. No. Why? Because yeah, because we have what? Eternal life. You, just the very. This is really very simple. What does eternal mean? Forever. So if you die, does that mean you have eternal life? No. Um, it's not that you know when we get to heaven we're just going to do it better. It's, it's that now we have uh, we have eternal life even now. And so when we draw our final breath, we enter to God's presence. Yeah. So the unfolding storyline of the Bible is really what we need to keep in mind as we study uh, the Bible. And uh, we started by looking at Genesis one uh, one. We considered uh, who is God, and God is. Not like us. There's a creator-creature distinction. 
And that's going to be important when it comes to even what we're going to look at today uh, with regards to even how we interpret our Bible. Uh, we interpret our Bible via the creator-creature distinction. Um, so a lot of times, I think unwittingly, so we put God in the same category as us. You know, we say that, you know, God is, and we would never say this, you know, on, in writing, but I think functionally we do it and we just don't understand how we do it. So we, we say, you know, God is kind of within our realm, the creaturely realm. He's just at the top. You know, he's just the most powerful. He's, um, you know, the, uh, the, the one that is sinless, without a body, um, but can be affected by his creation and is the most powerful. Um, rather than drawing this distinction, he's in his own, he's in a league of his own, so to speak. He's creator, we're creation. And so, the reason this is important to know is, is how we interpret our Bible, where we see things such as in Genesis 2, God rested on the seventh day. Or in Exodus 31, that uh, God rested on the Sabbath day and was refreshed. Does God grow weary? No, then why does Scripture say He was refreshed? Why does, why does Scripture say that God has wings, that God has eyes? Well, Scripture is assuming the creator-creature distinction from the get-go. In the beginning, God. There was God, and there was nothing, and then God created everything. So there's God, and then there's everything else. And so, God's the creator. He always is. He is who He is. Uh, Exodus 3. I am who I am. Uh, no one gave him his existence. He's always had his existence. He is his existence. Um, we're given our existence. But anytime God reveals himself to his creatures, he condescends. And so all of language is accommodated. And so that's assumed uh, as we, Scripture assumes we know this as we read Scripture. Um, we could say, uh, Genesis 6, God repented for making man. God was upset over something he did. I made a mistake. I regret that I did this. What was I thinking? That's the way Scripture's portraying God, but is that literally true? No. Um, 1 Samuel 15, uh, God regretted that he made Saul king. A few verses later, God never has regret. And so you have one or two things. Either one, you have a contradiction in Scripture. Or Scripture's accommodated language. Accommodated means God's stooping down um, to speak to creatures. So there's no point at which um, it overlaps. Does this make sense? So all of Scripture's this way. Now, it's, it is true, but it's still an accommodation to us, that we cannot know God the way he knows himself. He's infinite, we're finite. Anytime the infinite speaks to the finite, there is a condescending and accommodating of language. And that's important because we're going to see uh, that that's going to help us understand this the Sabbath rest as, um, as we're going to look at today. Um, so Genesis 1-1 is a, is a summary statement against the creator-creature distinction. In the beginning, God. 
God doesn't have a beginning. Creation does. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth, so that's a summary statement. And heavens refer to this invisible realm where the angels dwell. But Scripture doesn't talk about what happened with the creation of that realm. Rather, Scripture zooms in and talks about the earth now. Genesis 1-2, with regards to uh, the earth was... um, was, as it says, tohu vohu. We looked at that last time. What is, uh, of course, it's right there on the board. So what does tohu vohu mean? Yeah, so uh, uninhabitable and uninhabited. Uh, uninhabitable would be like a um, like a condemned house, so to speak. You, you can't move in, even if you wanted to. Uninhabited means it's ready to be moved into, but nobody's living there. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so Genesis 1-2 then zooms into the earth. And the Spirit is hovering over the waters. What does that mean? We talked about that last time. The Spirit hovering over the waters before God created. Okay, the Spirit's there. Okay. What's that? Seen it in a way we can understand? Okay. What else? How is it tied to the rest of Scripture? Yes, Chris. Okay, good. Yeah, so... um, We see that it's the Spirit who gives life, as Jesus says. Um, it's the, the, the work of the Spirit to bring to completion uh, God's works, as it were. Even though there's one work of God, it's from the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. Yeah. The uh, Spirit in the economy of both creation and redemption uh, it basically takes a, a house and makes it a home, if you will, uh, to use an analogy. Um, we see elsewhere in Scripture <clears throat> waters, don't we? We see Noah's flood. And with Noah's uh, flood, you have the whole earth covered in waters. And then God sends a wind over the waters. Now, how is that tied to Genesis 1 2? The Spirit over the waters, God sends a wind over the waters. Ruach, yes, even I erased it. You even remembered it. That's great. Yeah, what's ruach mean? Spirit, yes. What else does it mean? Wind. It's the same Hebrew word. So you have a ruach over the waters as God begins now to separate uh, the waters from dry land, and a new creation, as it were, emerges. Uh, you have uh, Israel going through the waters of uh, the Red Sea, in which Egypt is drowned. So again, you have waters that serve as judgment, uh, just as it did in Noah's day. And Israel emerges safely from those waters as this cloud uh, hovered over them, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. What is this cloud? The Spirit. Yeah, how do we know that?
Likely implied in Scripture? Okay. Why is that? Now, you don't need to answer this, but... Yeah, and Scripture says that God was with them in the cloud. And so, how does that then lend to uh, inferring that this is the Holy Spirit who is with them? Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah, um, yeah, that same cloud ends up descending upon the tabernacle, and you mentioned God's presence in Scripture. Which person of the Trinity is associated with God's presence? Act like I can't hear you. The Spirit. Yeah. Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? Hebrew parallelism, so the subordinate line explaining the first line using different words, or where shall I go from your spirit? So God's presence is his spirit. And when we believe in Christ, we are dwelt with the Holy Spirit, God's presence with us. Yeah. Um, also, Isaiah 63 explicitly says that the Holy Spirit was with them uh, in uh, the wilderness and brought them through the Red Sea. And so that cloud that was with them by day, cloud, you know, covering over them, is uh, the Holy Spirit. And so we, we, what we see here, we see this, this coming out of waters to a new life that the Spirit creates. And that's what we have going on in Genesis 1. Um, right now, or in Genesis 1-2, it's, it's kind of chaotic. It's tohu and bohu, translated as, um, tohu is often translated as a wasteland, as a, as a wilderness. It needs God's attentive care to begin to make it into a habitation for man. And it shows God's kindness and care to his creation. God is the greatest host there ever was um, in making a world for man to dwell in, for man to live in, and for man to uh, be blessed in. Okay, so Genesis 1-1, summary statement, God created everything, both the heavens, the invisible realm, and the earth. Genesis 1-2 zooms into the earth. It's tohu and bohu. We're going to look at that today. And then Genesis 2 zooms in even further to Eden. This special first temple, uh, the ho most holy place, and then you have not you have the garden within Eden, the garden of Eden, that's the holy of holies, and then you have Eden, which is the holy place. And we're going to see the tabernacles. We're going to see this later. Um, is a replica of this of Eden, and um, and we'll see that as we go along. So first, um, we need to talk about 
uh, tohu and bohu and, the, and see how this unfolds throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to notice a pattern here in Genesis 1. Uh, so first God deals with tohu and then he um, deals with bohu in this pattern that we see laid out um, in Scripture. So first we have Tohu, this wasteland, as it were. Uh, what does God create on day one? Light. You're correct. Light. What does God create on day two? You can. Yeah, this is an open book test. You can. You can look. In Genesis. If you want. Okay. Um, that's kind of true. It's uh, what, what did what did he? What's that? <laughs> okay, vegeta- um That's day three. What does God create on day two? He, there's a separation. That's why I say it's kind of true. There's a separation of waters, but okay. How about this sky? And seas. So there's a separation of waters above, waters beneath. Okay. Um, what did he create on day three? Dry land. Very good. Okay. So now, so what, what he's doing is he's he's dealing with uh, tohu. Uh, he's making a habitation. Okay. Now, now that he's made a habitation, he's going to deal with this bohu. Uh, what does he create on day four? Yeah, lights. Luminaries. So, um, one of the, and this is kind of a side note, but one of the things that uh, with when it comes to those who deny that God created in six days, um, they say, well, you know, he didn't create the sun and the stars, the luminaries, until day four. So how can there be days? You know, well, how would you answer that? Let's just I'll throw that out there. The circles? Oh, oh, oh gotcha. Okay, yeah, the creator creature distinction. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Aaron. Yeah, there's 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 morning, there's evening. The, uh, so okay, is is there a 24 hour period, so to speak? Okay, is it dependent upon whether or not there's a sun in the sky or moon in the, in the sky? No, they 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 just mark these out, right? So there's already time. There's already um just the, the light. You know, are there is there can light exist apart from the sun? Yeah. So just the fact that the, the, the creational light. That can exist with stars and so forth and so on. Um, maybe I don't want to put it this way. It's not the correct way to put it, but just the uh, con- even the concept of light, even the, the, the creation, that the existence of light, uh, regardless of what form it comes in, um, is what God creates on, on day one. And there's already time. It's just there's no markers to the time. We we I mean the reason we know what time it is because we have phones. 
we have watches. Um, back in that, back in the day, there was a sundial, um, so that the lights, the luminaries, marked off, um, marked off the days. Does that make sense? So just because there's not a sun or a moon doesn't mean there's, like, well, there's not a sunset, so there can't be um, the end of a day. Like, no, that's yes, Nick. Yes, yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah, yeah. If you go far enough north, it's going to be like. What's this evening and morning, you know? <laughs> but there's still evening and morning. It's just, um, it's dark the whole time. Or in the middle of summer, it's, where's evening? <laughs> no, it's midnight, midnight sun. Okay, good. Uh, what, uh, day five, what was created? Somebody, what, um, Sorry, what 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 did you say? Skies and trees. Okay. Um, I got my answer. Um, sea creatures and sky creatures on day five. Yeah, maybe I was looking. You should cheat by reading your Bible. It's not cheating if you read your Bible. Sea and sky creatures. Okay? So you're not filling the you're not filling the earth. What about day six? What's that? Created man, yep. What else? Land animals, yeah, exactly. Land animals. Oh, it's so animals. <laughs> Land animals. Yeah, that's how it's called. And uh and man, of course. So we see this pattern um where God creates light, then he creates uh and day four, the lights. Um day two corresponds to day five, so he creates sky and seas and separates waters, then he fills them, and day three creates dry land. And then later on, day six, he creates land animals. So you see how he's forming a, a habitation, um, and then he fills it. So he forms it first, and then it's empty, and so he fills it. So we see this this pattern. Okay, now, what about day seven? Rest. Where does day seven fit into this? Sabbath rest. Anything stick out to you here? Chris. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. It stands out. Right, it stands out um, from this pattern here. Um, what's that? Not like the others. Yeah, exactly right. That's why um, God uh, made it a special day, a distinct day, a day set apart. Um, he He hallowed it. This is the first thing He ever made holy. The first thing He ever hallowed, which which is this one day um, in seven. This is explicitly what God says in Genesis two one through three. 
that God sanctified or set apart um, this day for something to be holy. When we think of holy, we tend to think of moral purity, don't we? Um, and that's part of it, but holy just means that it stands out from the rest. It's distinct. It's separate. And so that's why a day can be holy. It's not that um, this day is more morally pure than the others. Rather, it's that God has separated this day out. Um, now, when God says that he um, rested on this day, and that's why this, this day is holy, it's, it's, it's a day of rest. It's not a day that he did any work of creation. Creation is complete. Um, and yet, in a sense, he's making another day. I mean, this is the way we experience it in our world, right? Seven-day weeks. There is a period of time that I think the French tried to do 10-day weeks and it just didn't work out. Um, they, they abandoned that plan. So it's always been the seven-day weeks. It's just embedded in creation. And so God didn't just end at day six and start over with the week. Rather, this is whole day where nothing happens. Uh, his creation is complete, and let's just have a whole day to reflect upon this. Um, but again, when it says God rested, uh, remember this. Remember what what I started off with. Um, did God take a breather? That was. I need. I need to rejuvenate. Um, you know, I I have lowered in my power. You know, I yes, I yeah, I know it says I'm infinite in power, but but just in this one case, I'm finite, and so I'm lower in my power, and I need a day of rest to to increase in my power. Is that what this means? No. So why does Scripture say that God rested and even was refreshed? Yes. Okay. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting there. Yeah. God made this day for for man. Um, man is an image bearer. Not only follows God in working, images God in working, but also in resting. Now we're gonna see in just a moment that yes, there's a as long as the creation exists, that pattern remains. Setting aside one day in seven. Um, no, one of the things that the world attacks is creation ordinances, right? What are some of the creation ordinances that are being attacked by the today? Marriage, gender, yep, work. What is something that the the world attacked in the 1960s? Sabbath. If you talk, um, Dave. Describe to, describe to me a Sunday um, uh, before 1960. Massachusetts had blue laws. What are blue laws? So this is this is liberal Massachusetts. Okay, they're in blue paper. What what are they? Just for people who don't may not know. Okay, can't have normal commerce. The stores were shut down. Okay. Okay. Okay.
Okay. Oh, okay. 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 So that that Okay, and that was that was common not just in Massachusetts, but the whole country. Yeah, there was um so I I saw this um uh, I I saw this this meme that um you know, had that the you know the new flag that's kind of out there now to represent the cult that's going on in our culture. It has like a million stripes, it has like a triangle, a million stripes of rainbow. And, um, and somebody said, this is kind of the way it is. Uh, conservatives are like, let's conserve tradition and it's a rainbow flag rather than the, uh, the new one. And so what it, what it is, is, is the more perverse a, a culture gets, just kind of accept the former perversion and this is the way it is with the sabbath uh it used to be everything was closed on the uh the first day of the week in america and that went by the wayside and today we kind of embrace it as well this is normal um you know it's like uh you know when when's this going to be over so i can get to my my business my activity um but that creation ordinance was attacked <laughs> by our culture, and it's to be expected, it's the culture we live in, but they attacked all the other. So we're so focused on the current creation ordinances that they've attacked, and we forgot, you know, they attacked the, the Sabbath, that this creation ordinance uh, that existed as part of the rhythm of earth before sin entered the world, even before sin entered the world. And um, now today we're like, well, they're attacking marriage, and they're attacking. Um, you know, gender, and it's gone kind of insane, but, but this has been going on for a while, and we may have unwittingly embraced it. But that's that's the creation pattern, okay? I actually want to bring out another aspect um, of the Sabbath, and it's uh, the fact that it was a sign. It was a sign of the life to come. Okay, that is what I want to try to uh, defend. Um, it sticks out not only in that it breaks from this this pattern we see, this, this symmetry, um, it stands out from the rest, and God made it stand out explicitly, but um, what else do you notice about it? So how does how do the other days end? So when the day is wrapped up, how does it end? There's morning and there was evening. Okay, now I want you to look at the end of the seventh day and tell me where that where it's where it says that. It doesn't. Yes, Michelle. Michelle uh, saved us some time. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. And then there was morning, and then there was evening. That sticks out. That's a break from the the pattern. Because every day there was morning, there was evening. First day, there's morning, there's evening, there's or maybe it's there's evening, there's morning, however it goes. Um, but there's a break from this pattern here. It is left open without closure. Now it's not the case that there's no sunset on day seven, 
or no day after it. Rather, what God's doing is he's, he's indicating this is a sign that pointed to eternity, to eternal rest for man to enter into. It demonstrates a pattern of entering rest upon completion of one's work. Uh, man was to image God not only in working like God worked, but also completing a work, and then upon completion of that work, entering rest. A lot of times when we say, well, we're made in the image of God, we, we only think about work. We, but we miss the fact that we are to, as, as Chuck pointed out, also enter rest as God entered rest. So there's to be a completion to our work. Uh, Adam's goal was to enter God's rest. And this was symbolized by the tree of life, which of course symbolized eternal life, that Adam would have received life eternal if he would have obeyed and, and successfully completed his work. And what that life would look like is entering a life of rest with God. Um, that's why the tree of life is in the garden. The tree of life is not... Um, when, when Adam failed to to obey, God barred him from the tree of life. He, he said he can't take from the tree of life unless he lives forever. Now, this tree, there's actually not some, I mean, I hope you don't think this, but there's actually not some properties in the, in the tree that would cause man to, um, cause his sin to be undone and then he would live forever. Like Adam was going to, run to the tree and try to take from it, and God tackled him before he did it. It's like, ah, ah, we're going to do this the hard way now. Now I'm going to send my son to die on the cross. and, and That's the only way you're going to live. There's two ways to live, but I'm going to, you know, you just can't take this piece of fruit and and, and it would solve everything. No, the, the fruit doesn't actually have properties that gives man um, eternal life. Rather, it's a sign of the life that he would have had had he obeyed. It's the same with like the Lord's Supper. You take the Lord's Supper as a sign of um, of Christ's body and blood being poured out for us and us being able to commune with God. Baptism is the same thing, um, where it's a sign of having died with Christ and buried with Him, raised with Him. Well, the, the, the tree of life is a sign of the life that Adam would have had had he obeyed. Does this make sense? So don't, don't think of um, the tree of life in a sacerdotal way. Like, don't think of it as the, the as the Roman Catholic sacred baptism. Like, oh well, the, it's actually the waters that actually, you know, um, bring about grace and life that save people. It's the, the tree of life is simply a sign, and that's why he was barred from taking from it because he doesn't have life. He failed. He's condemned. He's now exiled and cast out of the garden. Any questions on this? Okay, so um, the the tree of life was a sign of the eternal life Adam would have had. Adam was under a covenant of works where he had to do this in order to live. And that life is not just living forever. That life is entering into God's rest. I'm going to show here in a moment from Hebrews chapter 4. But instead of entering rest, what did Adam receive? Okay. But what kind of labor? Yes. 
Okay, yeah, so instead of getting rest, both him and his wife got harder labor. Her hard labor came in childbirth. His hard labor comes in. Um, By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. In pain you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. And if you ever try to do a house project, like all I want to do is is uh, is simply plumb something, you know, just like just. And what happens? It's always more difficult than this. Should only take me an hour, and and before you know it, the house is flooding, and um, it, that's that's part of the curse. It just things uh, just are just are not easy. Um, now, of course, there's always stuff that goes easy, but you know you know what I mean. Things that things are typically difficult. Um, the book of Hebrews ties entering God's eternal rest with this Sabbath day here. And I want you to look at that. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Can I get somebody to read Hebrews 4, uh, 1 through 5, please? And keep reading through verse 5. Okay, so this is a warning uh, to us to not fail to enter God's rest. And the author uses Israel as an example. Israel failed to enter God's rest because they did not believe the good news that God was telling them. And the writer quotes Psalm 95, wherein God swears in his wrath, that they, this wicked generation that died in the wilderness, who did not believe God, shall not enter his rest. And then Psalm 95 declares, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. Uh, and it uh, is referring, to, obviously, to the Israelites who died in the wilderness, Meribah, Massa. Um, and then there's a warning to us. To not to not fail, to not follow the Israelites in failing to enter God's rest. What is meant by God's rest? Let's start first of all with what when God swore to the Israelites, they shall not enter my rest. What was God referring to to the Israelites who died in the wilderness? They won't reach the promised land. That's exactly right. Okay, because they died in the wilderness. Uh, you're 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 not entering into the promised land, and so that is um, a, a, that's referring to the land of Canaan as God's rest. Okay, but then David writes Psalm 95. Where's David when he writes Psalm 95 and warns? The Israelites of his day don't fail to enter God's rest. 
Where, where, was, where was David when he was reigning as king? Jerusalem. Well, that's the land of Canaan, isn't it? That's, 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 that's Israel. That's this land that God promised. So David is writing uh, in the spirit in the land of Canaan that the Israelites are dwelling in, saying, don't fail to enter God's rest. Why? They're in the land of Canaan. That's what that generation in the wilderness failed to do. They failed to enter into the land of Canaan. Um, so what does David mean then? Now, if you keep reading verses 7 and 8, the, the author explains that, again, he appoints a certain day today saying through David, so long afterward, so long afterward, what? After what? The Israelites in the wilderness. Yeah. Um, and while they're already, and he says, saying through David, the implication is they're already in the land of Canaan. David's reigning. Um, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 8 explains this. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Why does the writer of Hebrews say that? If Joshua would have given them rest. He's arguing as if to say, guys, Joshua didn't give them rest. He's arguing against their belief that Joshua had given them rest. That's why he has to say, guys, if Joshua would have given them rest, then this wouldn't be the case. He wouldn't have spoken of a later day. So, what's going on here? Okay, the land of Canaan, where they would enter that rest, pointed to a greater rest. And that's why the author of Hebrews has to say, guys, this is why in Psalm 95, a long time later, he's still warning about don't fail to enter God's rest. If Joshua would have given them rest, if that was the final rest, he would not have spoken of another day later on. You see what's going on here? The land of Canaan is a type, is a shadow of that heavenly Jerusalem, that heavenly rest that God has promised. And this is that warning in Hebrews, which is, you, you just broaden it out to the whole context, so zoom out to chapters 2 and following. He's talking about entering God's eternal rest, salvation. He's talking about entering heaven. And he ties it to the land of Canaan as a, as a type. But what does he also tie it to? Verse 4 of chapter 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. How does that fit into everything that the author's saying here? Don't fail to enter God's rest. Just like Israel failed to enter the rest. But there's a greater rest of which God speaks. And then suddenly, he goes back to the seventh day rest that God entered into. In warning them not to fail to enter God's rest. Why does he bring this up? Does this seem to kind of come out of the blue? Okay. 
Okay? He's connecting it to this rest that God entered into back at creation. This, this day that seems to have no end, that's not closed off. Um, this rest that we are to enter is the rest that God entered into at the beginning of creation. And Adam should have entered into that, but failed by his disobedience. And yet, this is still held out to us. But how do we enter into it? Through faith. Why is it only through faith that we enter into it and not our works? Working is the opposite of resting, yeah. Um, so Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are labor, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Okay? Yes, Jesus already did the work. What work did he do? Okay, living a sinless life, dying and being raised. Made a way of peace with God? Yes. Um, okay. 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 So what that's good. So what we're tying Christ's work to is work his work as the second Adam. Scripture calls him an Adam. Why does scripture call him an Adam? Federal head, uh, David? Yeah. Yeah. Um does that mean that Christ's work and Adam's work? are in some way similar. They're obviously different because Christ came on a rescue mission and um, Christ is the Son of God who put on humanity to bear our curse. But there's some similarities, aren't there? Uh, Adam gets tempted by the devil to eat. Christ is in the wilderness getting tempted by the devil to eat. So he's not in this lush garden. He's in the exact opposite of a lush garden. He's in a wilderness. Um, Adam had plenty and the second Adam had, he was hungry for 40 days. But he is facing temptation. Why? Is it merely to show us how to do it? If, if you think that's it, then please don't tune out here. If you think that the only reason Christ was in the wilderness being tempted is to show us how to overcome temptation, that, that should be really on your priority list. That should be kind of at the bottom. That's part of it. But what's, what's the primary reason Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Chris. Okay. Okay, take away the pride that we can accomplish it ourselves. But what was, give, what was given to Adam? Why was Adam tempted? In the, the, the garden. Why did Satan come and test Adam? 
<laughs> that is true. Satan, Satan, and yet, did God have his back turned where he's like, how'd that, oh, man, how'd that happen? I, I knew I should have been watching more closely. You know? No, it's part of God's plan, right? God works even through evil to accomplish good. What was the good that God wanted to accomplish? What was, what was the requirement of Adam in that covenant of works? Okay, continually keeping the law. Remember from Galatians and, and from Romans 2, to the one who perseveres in doing good, he will receive eternal life. What does it mean to persevere in doing good? Don't stop, even under, yeah, no rest, even under what? Temptation and testing. That's why Adam was tempted in the garden, and that's why Christ is the last Adam, is also faced a temptation. Much more than just that, but um, tying it to the work of, of Adam. That was part of the covenant given to man. Do this and live. Do this under a test. If you want to gain eternal life, take from the tree of life. Yes, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good, it's a really good question here. Uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And when man, here's the thing, we're, we are uh, naturally drawn to the law. So anytime you hear strive or work, automatically think, people automatically think of uh, works of the law. So for example, in Romans 1 5, the obedience of faith, or um, to break about the obedience of uh, the Gentiles in, in Romans 16. Um, a lot of, right away, when people hear obedience, they automatically think the law. But striving to enter rest um, is that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, referring to the Israelites who failed to believe God's word. And that's, it even starts out that, that way, where, um, you know, they, they failed um, to enter that rest for, in 4.2. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because it was not united by faith, those who listened. What is this message? Christ has done it all. Christ has done everything we need. And, and one of the hardest things for us to do is to believe. Uh, we are slow apart to believe. Um, in fact, you know, you know what one way in which we demonstrate we're slow apart to believe is that we keep leaning on our works. You know, nobody's going to enter heaven by work because it's either all or nothing. It's either you do it perfectly, perpetually, personally, or not, or, or it's, you, you don't you don't go by that principle at all. It's you simply hear with faith, as Galatians says. And so that's that's um, part of that that striving is to strive to believe, to strive to rest. It's it's kind of a strange way to put it.
but I think it's put in such a way in order to get our attention. Um, as then he goes on to say, you know, the word of God to live in an active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Um, no, uh, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Now, if he'd ended there, we would go, don't, I better get busy with my works. But what does it go on to say right after that? Since then, so here's the conclusion of what I just said. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Here's how you strive to enter rest. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I love that. With our weaknesses, not with our strengths. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I think that's hard for us to believe. You see, Jesus is kind of this superhero, superman, that um, he got it right. He's up there in heaven. Look, guys, I got it right. What's wrong with you? You can't get it right. You should be like me in getting it right. I, get, I just left you an example. And if you follow my example well enough, then maybe I'll let you in. But in reality, it's this. I need to look to Jesus. I need to depend upon him. And I can because he is sympathetic. Sympathetic means to feel with. Uh, sin, it comes, it's come from two Greek words. Sin, uh, S-Y-N, which means with. Um, translated as sim in our English, and then uh, pathize. So um, it's it's from that uh, word to uh, undergo passions, to experience passions, which means to be acted upon. Um, he can feel with us in our weakness because in his humanity, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. This is how you strive to enter that rest. But I believe in these promises here. Um, we can draw nearer to the throne of grace. When we sin, that's the last thing we want to do. We want to hide. We do what Adam and Eve did and start to make fig leaves. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to try to get my act together. I'm going to try to do better next time. And then maybe I can approach God rather than going right to God to find mercy and grace. When do you need mercy and grace? All the time, but why? Because we sin. Mercy and grace is not its not the throne of merit to receive your reward for your obedience. It's when you have sin, when you need mercy. Um, and so, that's it. Anyway, to, to kind of wrap up here, um, this, this Sabbath rest, this rest that the, that the author calls us to enter into, to see that we don't fail to enter it, goes all the way back to creation. That's why he brings this up. Um, this rest that God entered is the rest that we're called to enter into. The rest that the first Adam should have entered into, but failed by his disobedience. The last Adam comes, obeys that covenant given to, that was given to the first Adam. He does it as the second Adam, and so we enter that rest by coming to Christ and finding rest in, in Him, resting uh, from uh, our works. And so this eternal rest, this eternal life that was symbolized in the tree of life in the garden um, is also symbolized uh, in the Sabbath. Uh, not only was this a pattern for creation, 
uh, of setting aside one day in seven, but it was also uh, what man was to follow, was to work and then enter this rest with God. This was, this was uh, the goal of humanity, of entering into a life of rest with God, eternal life with God. And that's why the Hebrew writer, when he's talking about entering God's rest, brings up uh, God's rest on the seventh day in creation. Um, now, of course, because that covenant of works has been fulfilled, uh, rather than working to enter rest, and the, the Sabbath being on the seventh day, we first rest and then work. So Christ says, come, all to, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then once we find rest in Christ, then we take that yoke upon ourselves, which is easy and light because we are resting in Christ. And so that's why now rest is on the first day of the week, because that's our pattern. First, entering God's rest, and then from that, that rest in Christ, as long as His creation remains, working from rest, not for rest. Does this make sense? It's also um, uh, just a, one other point. If you think about the seven days here. You know, the seven days is this creation. Well, um, sometimes in the Old Testament, there's a first day Sabbath, which pointed to our Sabbath is in, in the New Testament. And um, it was called the eighth day Sabbath. What does eighth day refer to? What do you think eight refers to? The day after the seventh day to indicate uh, the the creation, the life that comes after this life. And so even by having uh, the Sabbath day on the first day of the week, it's indicating that we have entered into the life of the world to come, that we've entered into the age to come. Uh, I know that's a lot. Are there any questions or comments on this? The only thing I wanted you to come away with is that the, the day seven, the Sabbath rest that God entered into, was held out for man to enter into it. Upon completion of that work, he failed to. The second Adam achieved that. And we enter into that rest by believing on Christ, as Hebrews 4 says, that Hebrews 4 ties that Sabbath rest, to uh, God resting on the seventh day. And so that's the rest we are to enter into. So, the, so this seventh day Sabbath rest was a sign of eternal life and the rest that man was called to enter into. Any questions or comments on that? Is anybody thoroughly confused? There's a lot of new concepts here. And I know sometimes it's kind of like, okay, the cement just got laid. I'm still kind of, uh, what, you know, still kind of foggy on it. But Okay, well, if there's no questions, you are dismissed. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com.
That is tbcwyoming.com.